I'll turn to the book of Nehemiah, if you would. Start our series tonight, introduction to the book of Nehemiah. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. All right? You get to Esther, you've gone too far. You get to Job, you've gone too far. Get to Psalms, you've gone too far. All right, good. Uh, I'm excited about the opportunity to study this, this wonderful book uh, with you. Uh, we are going to read uh, just verses 1 through 3. We'll cover a little bit of the narrative of the chapter itself, uh, but just cover the first three verses for our study tonight um, as we look at an introduction. And then Brother Justin's going to finish out the chapter next week uh, for us. Nehemiah, introduction to Nehemiah. If you would, if you found your place in the copy of God's Word, would you stand for the honor and reverence of God's Word? Who is here Wednesday night? Anybody here Wednesday night? Remember we talked about what we have with this? The reason why we're standing right now? The fact that the God of the universe, the God who names the trillions of stars and knows them by name, has decided to communicate His Word in human language. That should astound us, folks. This is why we're standing, for reverence of the fact that this has happened, that he has chosen to do this. What a wonderful, wonderful word we have. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers and some men from Judah, came. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. First Baptist Church of Great Gables, are you thankful for the word of God tonight? Let's join together and thank him for it, shall we? Lord, we do thank you for your word. But we thank you uh, that you in your wisdom and goodness and kindness have spoken to us your word. Lord, we pray that we be faithful hearers tonight. We ask for your help in that. We ask that you remove any and all distractions, that you'd focus our eyes upon you, that we would be drawn near to the throne room of grace tonight. Lord, that the things of earth would look strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I was telling somebody it's kind of a, a joyous occasion to start a new book around here, it seems, since we've been in the Gospel of John uh, for about two years, and we were in Psalms for a, a little bit over a year. Uh, we walked through Zechariah for a really long time and walked through Acts. <laughs> so every time we start a new book, it's kind of a, a, a moment of celebration, but yet I love that because God's Word is powerful, and it is deep, and it is uh, ready and, and, and able for, to, to, to mold us to the image of Christ, but I want to start tonight by saying this, to, to accept a job, to go to college, to study for a career, to accept a, a position of community service, to enter into the ministry to preach the gospel, to teach a Sunday school class, to accept the office of deacon in a local church, to really be involved in any activity without regard to God's will or God's word is not only foolish, but it's sinful. Why? Why is it sinful that we would do any activity apart from concerning God and his will and his word? It's because when you do not consider God's will and God's word, you attempt, therefore, to chart your own course, to choose your own direction for life, and thereby 
ignoring the lordship of Jesus in your life. See, as a Christian, as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, your prayer should always be, Lord, what would you have me to do? On a continual basis, the wise man of God never takes a step without direction from the Lord. The psalmist says in Psalm 37, 23, that the steps of a man are established by the Lord and he delights in his way. Let me ask you, are your steps established by the Lord each day? Are you delighting in the way of the Lord or are you going your own way? The greatest book in the Bible, in my opinion, on the subject of personal service to God is the book we're studying tonight, Nehemiah. Nehemiah is one of the great leaders of the Bible, much like Moses or Joshua or David. Nehemiah's life teaches us what God can do through a layman who discovers what God wants done, how God wants that done, and then simply gets the job done. Nehemiah's life is a testimony to the power of one life lived in complete obedience to the word and will of God Almighty. D.L. Moody once said these words. He said, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. Never, friends, underestimate the power of your life completely yielded to Christ. The Lord has laid it upon Brother Justin and I, my heart, to start a verse-by-verse study through the book of of Nehemiah. But really, before we begin that study, uh, before we look into uh, and understanding the significance of the book, we've got to take a brief look at the historical context of the book of Nehemiah. So here's the historical context. I hope your brain doesn't just shut off when the the words historical context come on, all right? This This is important. We were talking before service about biblical theology and how the entire Bible is one giant thread with Jesus at the center. And so understanding where this book takes place in history causes us to understand how this book takes place in Christ's story, in his story, as we've heard time and time Again, so here's the historical context. God warned Israel through Moses, and we see that warning in verse 8 of chapter 1. Look at that with me. It says, Remember the word which you, uh, which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Now, we know that Israel was unfaithful against the Lord. They forgot about God. They rebelled against his holy word by practicing several acts of idolatry and by forsaking the Sabbath year. And as a result, God sent King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians against Judah and destroyed Jerusalem's walls, burned their gates with fire, and took their people captive in Babylon for 70 years. The following are some historical facts for the context uh, for Nehemiah's call and ministry. First off, in in 539 BC, that same Babylonian empire that God used to take over Judah was itself taken over and destroyed by Cyrus, king of Persia. In 538 BC, one year later, Cyrus then allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem, back where they're from, to rebuild their homeland and their temple. And immediately, about 50,000 Jews returned. 
that fulfilled the second part of God's promise to Moses that we actually see in Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 9 where he says, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I've chosen to cause my name to dwell. And so we see that. This is what happened, is that Babylonia took over Judah, uh, Persia took over Babylon, Persia comes in and they allow the Jews to come back home and God uses all of this to fulfill his word because God never breaks his promises. The Jews, secondly, who return now through the decree of Cyprus, they were, were charged with building the temple, but they quit building the temple with only the foundation completed because of some fierce opposition in the land. Well, well, then 16 years passed and God raised up the prophet Zechariah, which I hope we know pretty well, and the prophet Haggai, who led people to complete the rebuilding of the temple. 60 more years passed and then God raised up a man named Ezra in 458 BC, who then reestablished the moral and spiritual life of the nation by reinstituting temple worship. Now, 90 years after the first Jews returned to Jerusalem, the walls of the city of Jerusalem were still broken down and the gates of the city were still burned with fire. Now, listen, the walls were very important to the life of the nation for without the walls, the, the city was open to attack and ridicule. So in, in 445 BC, God called a man named Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and the gates of Jerusalem. The name of Nehemiah actually means God comforts his people. And let me just say, I, I know of nothing that is more uh, of a comfort to the people of God than for a godly layman to, to rise up and be counted for God. Can I just say that this is a great and tremendous need in our churches today. Our churches need the comfort of godly men leading the charge of rebuilding the house of God to its doctrinal and spiritual foundations. And so it's my prayer that through the study of this great book that what you'll gain is a clear knowledge of God's will for your life and you'll understand better the principles of Christian work. It is my prayer that you will learn what it means to be a godly leader. Friends, we, we need some Nehemiahs today. And there's a spiritual lesson to be learned from the study of the book of Nehemiah. See, there are walls that need to be rebuilt and built in our lives. So many of the walls of individual Christian lives are broken and burned. Much of what we would once call biblical Christianity lies in ruin today through things like compromise and neglect. See, the call of God in Nehemiah is for us to rise up and rebuild the walls of our testimony, of our church, of our witness around the city of our souls. And when you attempt to rebuild the walls of God, you are going to find that there's going to be warfare, there's going to be opposition and persecution. For the devil does not want you to live in victory under the protection of God. He simply doesn't. Now, I said this Wednesday night... And I'll, I'm going to have to say it again, okay? To, to use this hermeneutic of this book, to use this doctrinal truth that God chose to build walls for Israel and apply it 
to the United States today on our immigration policy is not a good hermeneutic, okay? Here's why, let me tell you. America is not Israel. We are not God's chosen people. Mexico or Canada are not God's enemies. Not at least in the same way that we also are God's enemies. God has a new Israel and that Israel is the church. And and so this is not to be applied with some sort of nationalistic view. That's a bad hermeneutic. This is to be applied today thinking of what walls and how I need to be guarded at the church. As part of the church, what are the things that we have torn down as the church and allowed the enemy to oppose us, that has infiltrated us as the church and has caused destruction in our own lives? That's the, that's the correct way to translate this passage. Now, I don't think it, it's any doubt that if you talk to me for a little while, you'd learn my political leanings. And In fact, if, if you happen to not know my political leanings, I thank God for that. Because it's not my responsibility as a pastor to tell you how to vote or what politics to follow. It's my responsibility to give all the hope you ever need pointed towards the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our only hope. Guys, let me just tell you, government makes a terrible God. It's an absolutely awful God. And, and I'll be honest, there's a, there's a need in our culture to watch a little less Fox News and a little less CNN. Because as much as we do that and intake all of this politics and all this mess, it's a continual temptation for us to think that government is our Lord, and it's not. Now, you are to be a good citizen. You are to vote. You are to be involved. That's commanded in Scripture. That's, that's one thing. But friends, in our culture, just open your eyes. The temptation is greater than that. The temptation is for us to think that that the role of government is to be our full dependence. That's not the case, and it's never been the case. And God will have his glory because he is our full dependence. And so I want to make sure we know that. I'm going to use the term build the walls quite a bit here. And the last thing I want you to do is think that I'm supporting some sort of political idea or, or quote that on Facebook as a meme, okay? All right? Sound good? All right. Sorry to go on that tangent. I think we need that. <laughs> Let's ask this question. Why were and why are the walls and gates such a concern for God's people? Why did they care so much about their walls and their gates being rebuilt? I'll give you two reasons. One, the first reason why the walls and gates were such a concern for God's people is because these walls were broken down and these gates that were burned have a spiritual meaning. And that spiritual meaning was that the walls represented salvation and the gates represented praise, at least on a spiritual level. We'll get to the physical level soon, but this is the spiritual level. The walls represented salvation, the gates represented praise. And we just read that in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 18, that prophecy pointing towards these things. He says, uh, violence will not be heard again in your land or devastation or destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The inhabitants of Jerusalem could not worship and praise God for fear of attack, for fear of violence or oppression from their surrounding enemies. The walls, uh, uh, their walls of salvation and their gates of praise were lying in ruin in many, uh, all around them for their enemies to be able to stand up and mock and ridicule. The walls of salvation and praise, friends, today in the church lie in ruin as well. Don't we know so many professing Christians who have 
no joy in their salvation and therefore it affects their worship and praise? Friends, how the walls of salvation and praise need to be built back up in the lives of God's people and his church. Secondly, it also had a physical meaning. Not only did it have a spiritual meaning, not only is that why the walls and gates were such a concern for God's people, it has a physical meaning. Again, Dr. H.A. Ironside says that these walls had a twofold purpose, protection and exclusion. Protection and exclusion were the, the, the purposes that they served. Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 8 says, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof so that you will not bring blood guilt on your house if anyone falls from it. See, the roof of the house in that day was the place where the fellowship took place. It's a place where everybody met and gathered together without a parapet, which is without a rail, essentially, from protection. What happened? A young child or a careless adult might slip and, and fall and be killed. See, that wall served to protect from danger. And, and I, I love this because everyone says, and, and you hear this a lot, that we need to be tearing down walls on a continual basis, tearing down walls that divide our churches. But church family, let me remind you that some of those walls were placed there for good doctrinal reasons. Walls keep some things in. Walls keep some things out. That's not rocket science. Uh, we need some walls, dear church. The wall of the word of God and sound Bible doctrine. That is the wall that will keep us safe within and protected from without. We need to be about building and restoring the broken walls of Bible doctrine in our churches in the lives of the saints of God. Friends, walls help us know where God's boundaries are. This is how we protect from licentiousness or our, our thought that we have a license to do whatever we please as the church of God. Walls today are more necessary than ever before. Friends, the, the reason why we need to be part of a sound biblical church is for protection and exclusion. Even Timothy says that we are to be guardians of the gospel. We're to guard the gospel. That's the picture here. You need to be made strong in the word in this hostile world. As one guy says again, he says, Our churches, if kept pure, are little fortresses for the defense of giving out the truth. Let us build them strong, solid, and faithful. Let me say something here. Friends, Satan will always oppose God's people who get serious about their lives being rebuilt around the word of God. Whenever God's people say, let us arise and build, Satan is ready and says, let me arise and oppose. Uh, there will be no walls repaired in our lives without opposition. So tonight in our introduction, with the time we have left, and it's brief, I, I wanted to show you three short things about Nehemiah and his role in accepting the call of God to rebuild the walls of gates and gates of Jerusalem. We're going to look at his preparation, his proposal, and his purpose. I want us to first look at Nehemiah's preparation. Nehemiah's preparation. Aren't you thankful I'm not preaching a text from apocalyptic uh, prophecy or anything tonight with this thunder rolling behind? That's not God amening me, by the way, I hope. Uh, I think. I don't think that's how that works. His preparation. Let's look at the first four verses and read them over again. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, 
uh, Hakaliah, sorry. Uh, now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers and some men from Judah came and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped me uh-oh, and had survived the captivity about Jerusalem. We'll keep going. This is why y'all need to sit closer, right? Uh, if you can't hear me, you got to scoot closer. I don't know if I'm still on or when it'll come back, if it'll come back at all. Uh, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the walls of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, uh, I'm sorry, that's it, verse 4. Notice the thing that God used to call Nehemiah to Jerusalem. It, it was a burdened heart, wasn't it? Think about this. Nehemiah's brother, Hanani, returned from the trip of Jerusalem and gave Nehemiah the bad report of all the desolation and destruction of the walls and the gates, the affliction and reproach of the people. And when Nehemiah heard it, he came under a great weight and burden. He wept, he mourned, he fasted and prayed for days. He identified with the pain of his brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And it was in that time that God spoke to his heart about being the one to go and deal with the problem. See, this was more than just a, a head knowledge. This is more than just information. A man can give you information, but only God can give you a burdened heart. I, I've heard it said, you will never lighten the load for another until your soul has felt the pressure and pain they suffer. God must let us see things as they really are sometimes for us to get under the burden he has for his church. That's a preparation for service. And God's often very specific in who he gives a burden to. Let me tell you something. If you've received a burden for someone or some situation, friends, don't pass that off to the pastor or a spiritual leader. You are the one that God is raising up to restore the broken walls in that situation. Remember, Nehemiah was a lay person. He was not a, a priest. He wasn't a Levite. He wasn't an elder in Israel. This is just a man who loved God and God's people and came under God's burden for his people. Friends, the best deacon is a burdened deacon, <laughs> The best Sunday school teacher is a burdened Sunday school teacher. The best witness is a burdened witness. I can teach you a lot of things, but only God can give you a burdened heart. This is a missing element in our churches today. So let me ask you, what, what has God placed in your life as a burden? Who has he burdened you for in the church or outside of the church? And what are you doing with that? That's a gift from God that he gives you that burden. I remember not too long ago uh, being so excited about being able to be the youth pastor at Cross Point Baptist Church again because we had a new pastor coming and then it was, it was the night before Easter Sunday and God gave me a burden, a burden I could not shake and it was a burden for my brothers and sisters at home at First Baptist Church of Grey Gables. Friends, what has, has God burdened you for? What has he given you as a burden? Who has he given you as a burden? And what are you doing with that? Nehemiah had a burden for God's people and he responded. That's what we see in his preparation. Secondly, I want us to examine Nehemiah's proposal. See, Nehemiah cared for God's people enough to ask a, a very important question. 
And I want, to, I want you to see three things in Nehemiah's proposal that revealed how caring he was for his fellow brethren. I want you to first look at his position. Look at Nehemiah's position in verse 1. Just that last part, it says, Now I was the cupbearer to the king. See, Nehemiah served in the palace of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, as the king's cupbearer. And this was a position of great responsibility. At each meal, Nehemiah tested the king's meat and the king's wine to make sure it was not poisoned. What a privilege, right? A man who stood this close to the king would have had to have been handsome and cultured and knowledgeable in court procedures. And, and often the king would ask advice from the cupbearer. See, Nehemiah had great influence in his position. Like Esther and Daniel and Joseph, Nehemiah was in a special place for a special times. And this caused me to think this week. Church, never underestimate the power or purpose of God's will in your life. You... You are in a special place, a special position where God can use you to bring glory and honor to his name. It's been said before that big doors swing on small hinges. Never underestimate what God can do in your life on an ordinary day. It was an ordinary day when Moses encountered the burning bush. When David was called from the sheep and anointed king, it was an ordinary day. It was an ordinary day when Peter, Andrew, James, and John were fishing. Jesus called them on an ordinary day. Nehemiah was in the king's palace like any other day in Jerusalem. Little did Nehemiah know that his conversation with Hanani would change his life and the life of Israel forever. So let me ask you, church, when do you look for God in the commonplace? Do you ever see him in the ordinary, mundane routine of life? God is there, and he has a special purpose for having you exactly where you are. You remember that on Monday morning, amen? Listen to how the Bible says you should be prepared for an ordinary day. 1 Peter 3.15, we've looked at this text a lot. It's one of my favorite. Peter says, but sanctify the Lord as your heart. Christ is Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So now we've seen Nehemiah's position. I want to look next at his question in verse 2. Let's look at Nehemiah's question. It says that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. Nehemiah asked an important question. So let me ask this question. We looked at his position, right? Why would the prominent, wealthy, and successful ask about a small group of people who lived hundreds of miles away from him? I'll tell you why. It's because of a prophecy that was given 150 years earlier in Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 5. It says, Indeed, who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Or who will mourn for you? Or who will turn aside to ask about your welfare? Nehemiah was the man that was chosen of God to ask these very things and to come under a burden from the information he received. So how does that apply to us today? Friends, Remember this, God is a sovereign God. He is a sovereign God and he has chosen each one of his children for service. That means if you're a child of God resting in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, God has chosen you for a service. John 15, 16 says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. We looked at that not too long ago. 
Have you ever stopped to consider that God has you right where you are right now for a very special purpose? I'm afraid that the comfort of the palace has caused many Christians to forget what it was like being lost in sin. That we've got no burden or no identification with those who are in pain. So we've looked at Nehemiah's position, we've looked at his question, and I finally want to look at the information he's given in verse 3. Verse 3, looking at Nehemiah's information, says, They said to me, The remnant there in the province who survived the city are in great distress and reproach, and the walls of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates burned with fire. There There are really four words here that Nehemiah used to describe the Jews at Jerusalem. The first word is the word remnant. Where where once had been a strong, great nation, now because of their sin and their disobedience, there is only a small remnant of a tattered people. We need to learn this lesson. Hear this, sin, like cancer, can bring the mighty and strong down to nothing. Many a once great church, many a once strong Christians have been reduced to nothing because of sin and compromise. Sin will rob you of your vitality in Jesus Christ. Sin will bring death into your life. Sin will cause the walls of salvation and the gates of praise to be charred with fire. God does not want you to live with only a remnant of life. He wants you to have life abundant. It's the first thing he describes as remnant. Second word is ruin. He doesn't say that word, but he says the wall of Jerusalem is broken down. It starts with an R, so forgive me. The gates are burned with fire. Where once had been beauty, prosperity, praise, and worship of Jehovah, there was now decay and destruction. Church family, never offer up the blessings of the future on the altar of the immediate. One act of sin, one act of sin in a moment of time can bring ruin in your life for years. Deal with sin accordingly. (laughs) We ought to be serious about our sin. The last word, the second last word is reproach. This word reproach in the Greek, it means to be a mockery or a disgrace. The sin and compromise of Israel that led to their ruin gave their enemies cause to mock them in disgrace. The Bible says in Proverbs 25, 26, it says, like a trampled spring in a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. When the righteous sin This gives the enemies of God an opportunity to mock God's holiness and righteousness. Remember when David committed adultery, got Bathsheba pregnant? Remember what Nathan the prophet said to him in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 14? He said, by this deed, you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Church, when you as a Christian sin, it is not a private matter anymore. It's not even your reputation that's at stake. It's the blessed Lord's reputation on the line. And if we viewed sin in this way, perhaps we'd grow to hate it as God desires we grow to hate it. The encouragement for the Christian is that we give the enemy no occasion for reproach. I'll give you a final word that's ridicule. Without the city walls and gates, Jerusalem was open to ridicule and attack. 
When the first settlers returned to Jerusalem, they built their own houses first. They settled into their own lives. They got back into their routines. Their enthusiasm cooled and there was no spiritual fervor. Ninety years after their return, the walls were still in ruin and the gates were still destroyed. Their enemies ridiculed them that their God was unable to rebuild what they had torn down. Friends, what a picture of the church today. Seeking our own first instead of the kingdom of God. Many have settled down into this world. Their enthusiasm has cooled. They've become lifeless and unconcerned about the spiritual things that lie in ruin in their lives and in the church. And the result is that the church is mocked by the world today. Mocked, by the way, for being so much like it. Where there was once a church like a mighty army, I'm afraid most of what we have left looks like only a remnant The church's walls of salvation and gates of praise lie in ruin. But, friends, God had one man, Nehemiah, whom this ruin and reproach bothered greatly. Nehemiah cared about the remnant and got involved once he received the answers he sought. Well, for our last point, I want to look finally at Nehemiah's purpose. Nehemiah's purpose. Nehemiah, in my mind, I just keep thinking of, of Moses uh, in Hebrews 11.25. It says this about Moses in Hebrews 11.25. And this is, to me, a description of what I see in the book of Nehemiah as I've read it continuously over these last couple months. It says, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Friends, what a verse to, to want to be able to say of us, amen? That we would far desire enduring ill treatment with even the people professing to be people of God, then to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Nehemiah was ready to give his very life, if necessary, to help his brothers who were oppressed. He had a God-given purpose and was consumed with filling it. Friends, Jesus was like that, wasn't he? He was a man with a purpose. 1 John 3, 8 says, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And praise God, he did. All of Jesus' life was spent fulfilling this God-given purpose. And there's, there's so much even today that's, that's said about keeping your purpose at the forefront. It's, it's one of the seeker-sensitive words that everyone really loves to use. Many people are being encouraged that what you need in life is to find your purpose and fulfill that purpose. I think the more biblical approach is to know that God has already given you a purpose. You don't have to go seeking a purpose in life. We've got a God-given purpose in this life, and you find it all over the Scripture. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He will be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Praise the Lord. We also see this in, first, in 2 Timothy 1.9. A God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity friends your purpose in this life has always been the same thing your purpose is to glorify God that is your purpose 
God chose you, if you're in him from eternity past, to be conformed to the image of his son. He has called you with a holy calling. Your purpose is to live your life full of Jesus. Fully surrendered to his will, holy and clean. And, and friends, when that happens, he will guide you to each specific assignment that he has for you. Anything else is presumption and guesswork. You will never know what to do in specific areas of your life till you understand God's purpose for your life is to be like Jesus. That's it. So I want to close just quickly here with some questions we have to ask ourselves tonight. Why is the church in ruin and reproach today? Why is it that we're in ruin and reproach? We'll probably post these tomorrow. Um, And if you... Plug, if you don't get our Facebook page or don't get that information and you would like that to be texted to you or sent to you, you can find us as well. Why is the church in ruin and reproach? Why is the church not witnessing? Why are we not sharing the gospel of Christ? Why is the church dead and lifeless? How did this happen? Why is predominantly the church today so unconcerned with biblical doctrine? Why is the church so weak spiritually? More importantly, what can I, One man, one woman of God do about it. See, walls broken and gates burned. You see them in your family. You see them in your your friends, your marriage. And yet, you've not ever asked these questions. You never asked about these things. Friends, what about your lost loved ones? My prayer tonight is you would commit today to do what Nehemiah did. Ask your brethren about the condition of their souls. Care enough to ask. Have a burden enough to ask. And when you receive the truth, then act upon it. Get involved. Get obligated. This is what Nehemiah did for Jerusalem. Friends, this is what Jesus did for us. The question is, will we follow his example? My prayer is that by God's grace, we would. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Fathers, we considered wonderful things from your word tonight. Lord, what an example we have um, in your work in Nehemiah. Lord, we know that Nehemiah is ultimately a, a picture of Jesus and his burden for his church, for his people. That Lord, his, his purpose was to come and seek and save that which was lost. And he accomplished it. Father, we thank you that, um, that you've given us this word of importance tonight. That, Lord, maybe we can even begin to see those things in your life that you've burdened us with. We can begin to see those areas in our lives where our walls are torn down, where we're allowing reproach and ruin to come into our lives as a professed member of Christ's family. And, Lord, you would help us. As we seek each week to hear from your word, to learn from your word, that we would rebuild the walls of salvation and praise, that we rebuild the walls of biblical doctrine and spiritual disciplines. And Lord, in the midst of this, we are always dependent upon you for all these things. We thank you that you're faithful. We pray your work tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.